coming up next on Upstate's Health Link on Air. We'll hear about research showing that a saliva test can be used to detect concussion and predict how long symptoms will last. What we've been able to show in both the adults and the pediatric work is that these microRNAs are predictive of the severity of the injury as well as the time course of recovery. Then we'll talk about dealing with grief and loss. Roles, a loss of control, faith, safety and security. Important to take inventory of these secondary losses because they can be just as effective. And we'll talk with a registered dietitian about the value of and concerns about macrobiotic diets. There was lower blood pressure, lower plasma lipids and lipoproteins, and you know, better cholesterol levels in people who followed macrobiotic diets. All that along with a visit from our Healing Muse right after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, medicine, and science with Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll talk about how to deal with grief and loss. Then we'll explore macrobiotic diets with a registered dietitian nutritionist. But first, we'll hear about a saliva test that may be able to help diagnose and guide treatment for concussions. A researcher from Upstate Medical University has found a way to identify concussions in children and predict the length of their recovery using a simple saliva test. Here to talk about his work is Associate Professor Frank Middleton, who divides his work among four departments, neuroscience and physiology, biochemistry and molecular biology, psychiatry and behavioral sciences, and pediatrics. Thank you, Dr. Middleton, for being here. It's a pleasure to be here, Amber. Appreciate it. Now, I know that you collaborate with a professor from Penn State Hershey Medical Center on this project. How did the two of you come up with the idea of a saliva test that could identify concussions? That's a great question. So the researcher whom you're referring to is Dr. Stephen Hicks at Hershey Medical Center. And Steve and I first became involved in research together when he was actually completing his MD, PhD degree here at Upstate, and I was one of his faculty mentors. Steve decided that he was going to match in pediatrics and do his training uh, here at Upstate. And during his fourth year of medical school, um, I was fortunate to have the ability to convince Steve to come into the lab and start to engage in some research on a new class of molecules that the field of neuroscience, the field of molecular biology, had become interested in, and this class concerned microRNAs. Now, Steve's initial work in my lab focused on measurement of microRNAs in the serum of subjects, adult subjects, who actually had a history of alcohol abuse or alcoholism. And one of the tie-ins with that research and Steve's PhD uh, research is the fact that um, fetal alcohol exposure is a prominent risk factor for autism spectrum disorder. So Steve and I actually thought it would be very appropriate for us to consider trying to measure these microRNAs in children who were believed to have autism spectrum disorder, whether they were experiencing that as a result of a fetal alcohol exposure or not. There are many different ways that you could develop autism spectrum disorder. So we thought because of the difficulty in diagnosing kids with this syndrome, maybe the use of microRNA measures would be useful for that. So microRNA, let me just back up a, a little bit. It's a new class of molecule. Does that mean it's everywhere in our body? It's in the bloodstream or wh where, where is it? That's a fantastic question. So microRNAs we didn't know about when I was going through college. And uh, when most people who are doing research right now, we're going through college. They were really only discovered in the early 90s, and it was discovered in research involving worms. It took about a decade before people started realizing that these microRNAs were present in just about every organism on Earth, that the microRNAs, in fact, were present 
in the genomes of uh, every species that they went looking, with the exception, perhaps, of some bacteria. And these microRNAs have the ability to regulate the expression of more than half the genes in the genome. So we used to think that it was a pretty simple process to go from the DNA to the RNA to the protein in cells. And what this realization of the existence of microRNAs clearly established was that that's much too simple, that microRNAs actually dictate whether an RNA turns into a protein and therefore much more directly tied to the cellular phenotype, if you will. In answer to the second part of your question, microRNAs are made in every cell in the body. They're made normally. They're required for cell development. They're required for cell division, cell reproduction. They're required for every biological process that you can imagine. In my case, uh, the interest of, of my own research in microRNAs, they're definitely required for normal brain function. And they are released by cells, and they travel in every biofluid of the body. So microRNAs are thought to potentially be a molecular endocrine system that was, until recently, completely unrecognized. Wow. That's a new horizon. Just seems like a wide open. So uh, the changes that you would see in cerebrospinal fluid, it would make sense that you would also be able to see those in saliva. It's another body fluid, right? Well, it's true. There are changes that you can detect in uh, different microRNAs are, are found in different biofluids. But there are some changes that you can detect in uh, multiple biofluids because they share some of the same microRNA mm -hmm. composition. The microRNAs that are found in a biofluid are released there from cells that are either involved in synthesizing or secreting that biofluid, or potentially, they, in the case of saliva, for example, they may be released by nerves that actually innervate the salivary glands themselves. And so in terms of the autism work that we were interested in um, spearheading, we decided early on that we were going to move away from trying to collect blood in children who had autism spectrum disorder and instead try to look at saliva. And that really opened up our eyes a great deal to all of the work that, that has come since then. Did the, you move away from blood to saliva because it's easier to get a saliva sample from a child? It is the easiest biofluid um, that you could possibly obtain from a child, yes. Okay. Um, and my colleague, uh, Steve Hicks, has actually completed parent surveys of which biofluid that they would most like to see their child um, contribute to research studies. And far and away, parents are the most agreeable with having a saliva sample. So our process in our initial uh, studies looking at autism um, was very educational and informative. We learned we can quickly get saliva samples from these children with autism, and we can measure several hundred microRNAs simultaneously in their saliva. And in the autism work, we can relate these to neurodevelopmental function, brain um, abilities of the, the related to social behavior and play and language and communication, sort of the normal brain function landscape. All of these things show some relation to the microRNA levels that we were measuring. Interesting. Uh, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Associate Professor Frank Middleton of Upstate Medical University about a new way to identify concussions. So let's talk a little about concussions because they seem to be sort of a challenge for everyone. I've seen estimates that more than 2 million children and adolescents experience concussions every year, and they're somewhat challenging to diagnose, uh, to treat, to know how long to treat. Um, so what's the current state of when a child comes in with a head injury and a concussion may be suspected? What do you, what do, you do from there? That's an excellent question. So I became very interested in concussion research for two reasons. One, if a child experiences perinatal um, head trauma, 
and it damages part of the brain called the cerebellum that I've done a fair amount of research on. It turns out that that child, and you can consider this a, a type of prolonged post-concussive syndrome, that child who experiences that type of concussion is a 30-fold increased risk of developing autism spectrum disorder. So for, for life. For life. And the reason we believe that the risk is so elevated is because there are developing connections between the back of the brain that would have been injured in this case and the front of the brain where language and communication and social function are actually going to develop more in the future. And when these connections are damaged and disrupted, whether it's uh, an impact injury or a twisting injury or something like that, then that whole system doesn't develop normally. The brain is not an, an island. No part of the brain operates in isolation. The brain requires connections between areas that are located some distance apart. Concussion absolutely interferes with these, the communication across these pathways. So you're right, concussion is at a near epidemic proportion. And uh, in the U.S., every year about 1% of Americans will experience concussion, and more than half of these are ex experienced in, in children, the pediatric population. So walking into my lab every day, I would walk past the new, newly established um, concussion research center at SUNY Upstate, and I really had always wanted to, to merge my interest in autism and what I knew about the risk factors uh, for autism that included concussion research with getting into um, the microRNA measurement potentially as a biomarker for concussion. So I started a series of conversations with Brian Rieger, who's a researcher and clinician at Upstate and, and the director of the concussion center. And this led us to think about whether what we'd been doing in autism, what we'd been doing in alcohol abuse um, could be applied to the study of concussion. And initially our work in concussion focused on adults because we had access to a lot of samples uh, where we knew athletes, in this case they were mixed martial arts fighters, had experienced a concussion. And they had already had research um, in place where they examined the functional state of these mixed martial arts fighters prior to them stepping in the, the octagon and then immediately after and then at days and weeks following. And so we took the same time points that they were using for functional assessments and we just went back and we measured the serum and we measured the saliva of those fighters and we realized that the microRNA patterns in the saliva and the serum as well were very predictive of the injury, the severity of the injury, and the course of recovery. And this research was constantly being discussed among our research group, which included Steve Hicks at Hershey Penn State. And Steve initiated studies down there in their pediatric concussion center very much trying to parallel what we had been doing in the adult population in our athletes. They didn't have the benefit of looking prior to an injury because in their population they were only looking after the child had shown up for treatment at the concussion center. But whether you're a child or whether you're an adult who experiences a concussion, the, the bottom line is that two things are very difficult to predict. One, you don't know how severe the injury is. It's pretty easy to tell if somebody has experienced a concussion if you're at the sideline of a sporting event or you're watching somebody who's in, involved in a boxing match or an MMA fight. You can tell when they can't stand up normally, when they've had disorientation and, and problems in, in thinking. But you don't know how severe it is. And the second thing is, you don't know how long it's going to take them to recover. What we've been able to show in both the adult and the pediatric work is that these microRNAs are predictive of the severity of the injury 
as well as the time course of recovery. And this is very exciting, especially if you don't necessarily need to have a pre-injury measurement. And that's what Steve's work at Hershey Penn State has, has really shown, that even though they're only getting uh, the saliva measures a week or two weeks after the initial injury, they're able to tell which children will have uh, prolonged post-concussive syndrome. Uh, this is fascinating, but we're running out of time. Um, just tell me quickly, how soon till we have this in the hospital emergency department? That's or a great question. We are definitely trying to do everything we can to create something that's as simple as a strep test swab. It could be used in a physician's office or certainly at a concussion center to be able to come up with a definitive prediction about the diagnosis and the prognosis to really help these kids get back to school or help adults get back to their job and help inform the treatment. Very interesting. My guest has been upstate scientist Frank Middleton talking about concussion diagnosis. I'm Amber Smith for the podcast and talk show produced by Upstate, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, grief and loss. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Grief seems to be getting more attention recently. Prince William is talking candidly about the loss of his mother, Princess Diana, 20 years ago. And Facebook CEO Sheryl Sandberg has written a new book about dealing with grief after the loss of her husband a couple years ago. Here to talk with us about dealing with grief and loss are Jeffrey Schweitzer, a licensed clinical psychologist in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Upstate and the primary psychologist at the Upstate Cancer Center, and Brian Arismendi, a PhD candidate in clinical psychology at Upstate, who has focused a lot of his work on cancer survivorship, grief, and loss. Welcome, Dr. Schweitzer and Brian. Thanks. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So what changes have you seen in bereavement in the past 25 years or so? Sure. Um, so, you know, bereavement theory and research has a fairly long and storied history. You know, so we'd like to start by talking about you know, where we've been, where we are, and, and where we're headed. Um, so, in terms of where we've been um, in the early and mid 20th century, I'd like to focus on three key intellectual figures who largely define the psychological discourse surrounding bereavement. Um, and you know, the first is Sigmund Freud. So he's an Australian, Austrian, excuse me, neurologist and the founder of psychoanalysis. I'm sure all the listeners are quite familiar with him. And We've heard his name. His influence, right, internationally as well with it, is within the United States. And he wrote a seminal paper in 1917 called Mourning and Melancholia. And in this paper, he distinguishes between mourning and depression. And in so doing, he depicts grief as a natural and cathartic reaction to loss. Okay. However, one that is also intrapsychic, okay, divesting oneself of the psychic energy associated with the lost love object. And with that, a relinquishment of ties to that lost love object. Okay. So the, the important takeaway from Freud is that grief is intrapsychic. And, and the, what does intrapsychic mean? Means it, it happens within, within us. Okay. Yes. It happens within us and specifically within our, our psyches or our, our psychologies. Okay. Okay. And that the goal is to, to let go, to relinquish ties, you know, as it exists within our psyche. Is that still believed? Uh, no, we're actually quite far from that, Okay. Um, fortunately, in my view. Um, these days, I, I think we're um, adopting more of a, a relational or intersubjective approach to grief and mourning. 
Now, what I'll, I'll later talk about is the implication of this view is that uh, bereavement is largely individualistic and private. It's something that happens within us and not between us. Okay. Yeah. Right. And you know, that's something that can be incredibly isolating and have detrimental effects for the bereaved. Okay. All right. Now, the, the second key figure I want to talk about is someone named Eric Lindemann, who is a, a German-American psychiatrist. And uh, he was the first uh, that presented grief as a syndrome. Okay. And a syndrome essentially is a collection of symptoms. And by labeling it as such, he is uh, starting to present the idea of, of grief as a, a disease or a medical entity. Okay. And you know, that is, is quite different from what Freud was saying in that grief is a, a natural, natural. Yes. Um, and with that comes the idea of grief as normal versus abnormal. And the way he puts that is that there's such a thing as a, a morbid reaction. So is Lindemann, when he talks about grief, is it just grief from loss or grief from other things? Yes. Uh, he, he talks about grief in terms of uh, literal Of a loss. death of someone. Okay. Yes. Uh-huh. Right. Yes. Um, although you are alluding to a, another change that we're starting to see in the, the field, and that's a, a distinction between primary loss, you know, so the the loss that Lindemann and, and Freud and others talked about in these early theories, and something called secondary loss. So these are more intangible losses. These are our psychosocial consequences of the, the death of a loved one, you know, the loss of identity, the loss of roles and values, et cetera. Okay. Yeah. Well, the thing I remember hearing about is the stages of grief. Ah. Do we still follow that? Do we believe that there are stages of grief? Uh, we do, we, we do follow that still. And, um, I will say, unfortunately, again, because, you know, sometimes we can follow these stages too literally. Um, this is an idea that was put forward by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, um, who, along with Freud, probably most well-known in, in our culture and internationally. <clears throat> she wrote a book called On Death and Dying in 1969. And in, in that book, uh, proposed the idea that uh, grief is experienced in stages. But what most people may not know is that um, she developed this theory from speaking with terminally ill patients, not bereaved persons. And out of those conversations, you know, developed these different stages, uh, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And I won't go into those in too, too much detail. I think they're fairly self-explanatory. But that really relates more to a, someone who's terminally ill as opposed to someone who's grieving the loss of someone? Um, I think that these, these experiences can apply to bereaved persons mm -hmm. as well, but important to note that the, the theory primarily did come out of those conversations. Okay. And also, I think that she was somewhat tentative in the way that she presented that. You know, these are, these are common experiences um, that you may have, but the the way that culture received it, it was kind of turned into this linear process. So grief uh, progresses in these orderly stages. And when I say that that's an unfortunate um, interpretation of it, it's because uh, when I work with patients, I notice there can be a lot of self-judgment and unnecessary suffering that comes out of that. Um, right now, you know, I'm in the depression stage and I should be in the acceptance oh. stage or I was in depression and now I backtracked and I'm angry again. Is there something wrong with me? And then there's that pathologizing of, of one's experience based on this, this model, which was intended to be helpful. And it is in some ways, but in other ways can be detrimental too. Okay. Well, let me, uh, let me switch a little bit to Brian, um, sure. because you've done research in this as well. Mm -hmm. um, what has been your experience with um, how people are dealing with grief these days? Um, yeah. So uh, based on the research and the um, literature searching that um, I've done to carry out this research, mm -hmm. um, we've uh, 
distilled three more um, contemporary, um, <clears throat> uh, I would say, uh, theories of uh, grief and bereavement. And the one that I've focused on the most um, is known as the dual process theory. So it moves away from um, this linear model of grief, um, as Dr. Schweitzer was just talking about, um, and describes bereavement um, as um, oscillating between what we would call loss and restoration-oriented coping. Um, so bereavement then is a dynamic process of both confronting um, or in, in more behavioral terms, approaching and avoiding or moving away from the experience of the loss and the person that has been lost. Um, so um, this theory kind of naturally contests the assumption that grief must be um, just confronted until it is overcome and um, and gotten over. Um, that's kind of a misnomer. I, I kind of conceptualize it as uh, grief, not, you don't get over grief. You integrate the loss as part of your personal story, your narrative, how that person and their, um, relationship to you has influenced <clears throat> you, um, as you look to the future. So again, loss and restoration. Sometimes you hear people talking <clears throat> about, you know, they need closure. Mm -hmm. Does mm -hmm. that fit into the dual theory or? Uh, again, I would say, um, I would prefer the word integration to closure. Closure for me, connotes um, uh, turning a page on something mm, or, or closing okay. a chapter of that book, if you will. Whereas I think it's more accurate to say it is it is an integration. It is a synthesis of the relationship and of the loss uh, event um, into uh, the surviving, say, spouse's life now as they look to the future. And in my research, I looked at this um, uh, approach and avoidance tendencies in spousally bereaved older adults, so older adults that had lost their spouse. Um, <clears throat> men and, and I, women who've lost a spouse. Men and okay. women, yeah. Uh -huh. And um, as they, or, or rather doing so from a, both a behavioral and a neuroscientific uh, approach. So um, seeing how they might respond to images of their spouse versus images of other loved ones versus generic images of grief, say like a casket, um, different vary varying reminders of their loss uh, experience while they were in what's called a functional MRI machine that mm. can measure brain activity. Okay. Um, and what did you find? Right. So, so in terms of the behavioral um, findings, um, we did show... Um, we did find that individuals that have lost their spouse do show this automatic um, or implicit tendency to approach um, pictures of their of their lost spouse specifically, but not necessarily the more generic reminders such as a casket. So they were um, more drawn to um, images of their spouse and less so drawn to images of um, a generic reminder such as a casket or a headstone and and. Um, I guess by extension, uh, the neuroscience results, uh, the neurobiological results indicated um, that the um, individuals doing so were using a lot more of uh, cognitive resources in determining the um, processing and what we call the emotional salience or the emotional relevance of these different stimuli um, during this task. Interesting. Mm -hmm. um, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with psychologist Jeffrey Schweitzer and PhD candidate Brian Arismendi about grief and loss. Mm -hmm. um, and Dr. Schweitzer, mm -hmm. um, tell me about the research you've done. Before I get into my research, I'd like to share with the audience uh, a couple of other theories that um, have emerged more recently. Sure. And these are the, the true theoretical roots to my research. Uh, the first is something called Continuing Bonds, which came out in the mid-90s. Uh, and this particular theory represents a shift from the goal of relinquishing ties uh, with the dead, which started with Freud. Okay. And uh, the theory posits that the bereaved often experience continuing relationships with the deceased, and that attending to this relationship can facilitate rather than hinder the bereavement process. So how, what are some examples of how they would continue a relationship with someone who's died? Would they be wearing their clothing? Yes. Or uh -huh. Okay. Yeah, that, I think that's a great example. So 
Uh, it may be uh, personal objects of, of the deceased with which the bereaved uh, associate um, that have a strong uh, effective and, and psychological significance for them. Um, mm -hmm. So it may be a, a matter of you know, holding on to a, a piece of clothing, um, you know, smelling a, a piece of clothing. Um, also, it can take an intangible form, such as through stories. Um, there are some clinicians and, and researchers out there uh, who've coined this practice called remembering, okay, R-E hyphen remembering, okay, huh. uh, and that's, uh, what that means is kind of reconstituting, putting Putting the, uh, putting the relationship back together, if you will, uh, summoning the relationship through storytelling. Um, so that's something that can be done individually, uh, that, that can be done with friends and family members. You know, remember the time that we did Like so looking so. through a scrapbook yes. or photos mm -hmm. uh, just to, okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was one of the theories. Um, yes. Is there another? Another is uh, something called meaning reconstruction theory. And um, you know, earlier you'd questioned this idea about the bereavement processes is happening within us. You know, is that something that's changing? You know, that's a, a major aspect of this particular theory, which proposes that life meaning is co-created and elaborated in and through relationships. And the loss of significant persons can therefore create a rift in our core meaning structures. Mm -hmm. Examples of core meaning structures are, you know, how we understand self-identity. You know, who are we? How do we define ourselves? How do we understand interpersonal relationships? What do those mean to us? What are our values? For example, belief in a just world. You know, that, that's one value that can often be thwarted by the loss of a significant person, particularly when it's sudden and, and tragic. Well, um, and if it's, a, if it's someone in your life who has been very meaningful to you, who's been your support, has been there for, through everything, it would rock you to your core to lose them. Right. Yes. You know, thinking about the, the, the death of a spouse uh, to whom you've been married for 30, 40 years. Um, you know, not only does that unground you from the past and, and the present, but also your anticipations of the future. You know, if that were to happen, for instance, near retirement age, you know, you have all these hopes and dreams, you know, set up about what you're going to do together, and suddenly that's that's taken away. Um, it creates a, a massive upheaval that can be deeply painful. Uh, wow. Well, this is uh, very interesting information, but mm -hmm. I'm, we're running out of time, so uh, I need to. Um, let, what are the takeaways from this? What what um, what is this? What have we said about bereavement in general here? So one important takeaway is um, distinguishing between primary and secondary loss. You know, we we talked about that a, a little bit earlier. So primary loss being that the literal loss of the the person, and secondary loss being you know, what are the intangible consequences of that for the you? The loss of the relationship or the um, lifestyle or the activities that right exactly that, okay yes um hopes and dreams for the future um okay. roles uh, loss of control faith safety and security important to take inventory of these secondary losses because they can be just as affecting and then we talked a lot about um bereavement not being like this linear stages that you go through and and such but it that it's more complex and right. um yeah right. absolutely um i think that's where we've arrived now with the, the empirical and qualitative research that we have is that um, it is, it is nonlinear, um, it is time varying, and, and really bottom line is it, it is unique for each individual, it's heterogeneous. Um, we have some common themes that we can pull across people's experiences um, that uh, have led to these um, contemporary theories, um, but that it is a complex and, and uh, nonlinear process. Um, and with that um, comes the idea, and I think to circle back around to um, some of the uh, media you discussed in the beginning is that um, you know, what you can do um, when someone you know is um, experiencing grief or bereavement, and, and really because it is unique to each individual, it's important to just allow them to express themselves, uh, allow them to tell their stories of their loved one, 
um, listen, uh, be present with them, mm -hmm. not try to fix it. Um, I believe um, Cheryl Sandberg uh, said, what's most helpful is what uh, asking what, how are you today? Um, versus how are you doing? Because it's day-to-day, -day, it's different. Oh, good point. Um, so, good point. Well, my guests have been Dr. Jeffrey Schweitzer, the primary psychologist at the Upstate Cancer Center, and PhD candidate Brian Arismendi. Thank you both. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, Macrobiotic Diets on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. HealthLink on air. Some people believe that a macrobiotic diet is a healthy way to eat and that it can help prevent cancer by reducing inflammation. Here to talk about this is registered dietitian nutritionist Maria Erdman from the Upstate Cancer Center. Welcome, Maria. Thank you. So whole foods and traditional foods in harmony with the seasons. That's a description of macrobiotic. It sounds a lot like the clean food and the eat local movements merged. Well, it's, there's actually some... Uh, some people say that this diet was the basis of those movements. That really? they kind of started. Um, this was very popular in the 60s and 70s in Massachusetts, and it it grew from there. And those things may have come out of of this movement in the past. Okay, uh, this goes back to the 60s, but even before that too, right? The 60s was sort of a rebirth of. Well, the macrobiotic, the great life is what it means. And, um, you know, it's been used by Hipp Hippocrates and Aristotle, but um, it came out of Japan. And the person who brought it here, his name was Michio Kushi. And his actual, he started out looking to um, make world peace happen by using the macrobiotic lifestyle to bring peace to each individual person. He figured if, they, if you did that, then world peace would come. Okay. All right. So it has Japanese origins. Yes. Okay. Um, let's talk about the difference between complex and simple carbs, because that's sort of part of this diet, right? Well, the diet is based, it's, it's 60 to 70% carbohydrate or whole grains, actually. And um, that is an awful lot. But when they say whole grains, they really mean whole grains, cooked grains, not processed really there's there's a little bit of room for whole grain breads but mostly it's just the grain itself very close to the actual food right out of the field um, so the complex carbohydrates in whole grains break down much more slowly than simple carbohydrates like white flours uh, sugars etc so if you're eating a basis of complex carbohydrates the energy is going to more slowly be digested and um, absorbed into your body. Therefore, your blood sugars won't go up, they won't spike, and then be brought down by insulin, which the um, insulin release of insulin can, can release other things that cause inflammation. So what happens is you have this low, constant energy source and less inflammation. That's that's the theory behind the, the whole grains. And also, this being based on Japanese theory, it was also based on yin and yang, and whole grains were purported to be the most balanced food as far as yin and yang. And so if you started with a basis of balance, then you could put other foods in, but you know, from others, from one, some that were more yin, some that were more yang, and have a, a balanced diet based on these whole grains. And whole grains are a healthy diet though, right? Yes, but, whole grains are, are very good for you generally. But if that's all you eat, that's not a complete. Correct, and there were some steps in, in the earlier um, 
versions of the macrobiotic diet. In some books, there's, there's a, a tenth and final step that is just brown rice and water, and obviously that is not a complete diet. It would not sustain life. Okay. So tell me uh, dif the difference between energy food and building food, because that's also talked about in here. Well, one of the um, ideas that was brought up in, in the, mac the Macrobiotic Diet, which was a book written by Cushy, considered the, the Bible of the Macrobiotic Diet, um, is that you need more energy foods than building foods. And the idea here was that energy foods are these complex carbohydrates that we, our bodies use can take and turn right into energy for immediate use um, you know, throughout the day. Whereas the building foods is what they call protein. So this diet is lower in protein than most Western diets. And their idea is that you only need as much protein as you actually need to replenish your protein stores in your body. Our muscles are made of protein, enzymes are made of protein, but they can be recycled in the body. So we don't need to eat all of the protein that we will use in the day. Um, and pro extra protein, when we ingest it, can be used for energy, but it takes more effort to break those proteins down for use as energy. And there's more waste products in the form of nitrogen, which has to be processed by our kidneys and to some degree our liver. And it puts a little bit of added stress on those organs. Mm -hmm. And that is another one of the tenets of the macrobiotic diet, that we don't want to stress those organs. So we don't want to eat more protein than we need. We want to have the energy foods be foods that are easily broken down for energy. Interesting. Well, I want to get into the details of the foods that you actually eat with a mac macrobiotic diet. But first, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with registered dietitian nutritionist Maria Erdman of the Upstate Cancer Center. So what does a macrobiotic diet consist of? What are you eating if you're following that, that food? The general outline was that you had whole, unprocessed foods preferably locally grown and preferably organic, approximately 50 to 60%, and in, in some places I read up to 70% of whole grains and whole grain foods. I mean, of, of the calories of the diet should be, of, should be made of whole grains, whole grains. and whole grain foods. Um, 20 to 30% should be locally grown and or organic vegetables. And 5 to 10% beans and sea vegetables. And this harkens back to its Japanese beginning. So by sea vegetables, nori, which is a seaweed that's wrapped around sushi, and there are many other types of seaweed. Um, 5 to 10% soups and 5 to 10% beverages, fish, and desserts. And most of the desserts were things like fruits or there's a, a, a sweet rice that was turned into a dessert also. So almost vegetarian. It is mostly vegetarian. There's also an allowance for uh, white flesh fish. So that is, is one place where you could get higher doses of protein if you needed it. So what is the benefit if you're following this diet? Is it heart healthy? Is it? There actually have been studies that show that it is heart healthy. Um, there was a paper back in the 70s they did a lot of, of research on this diet and um, they showed that there was lower blood pressure lower plasma lipids and lipoproteins and um, you know better cholesterol levels in people who followed macrobiotic and or vegetarian slash vegan diets so that is one place where it's actually proven to have some benefit is it, it's very heart healthy what about cancer-fighting properties? Has that been looked there at? There is no strong evidence at this point. And it's funny because Mr. Kush, Michio Kushi, the man who brought macrobiotics really out into the public's eye, his son became an epidemiologist trained at Yale. And um, he actually wrote a paper. And in his paper, he said, as with most aspects of diet and cancer therapy, there has been limited research evaluating the effectiveness of the macrobiotic diet in alleviating suffering or prolonging survival of cancer patients. So nutrition research is difficult to do anyway. You can't force people to eat certain things. And having cancer has its own issues, which you know, makes it hard to necessarily stick with eating certain foods. So 
there hasn't been really enough evidence to show that this has been curative of, in any way. Um, but given that it seems to possibly decrease inflammation, it certainly couldn't hurt to follow this diet while you're getting cancer treatment, as long as you're getting enough calories, and, and that's an important part of it. Does it, um, is there anything that says how it leaves you feeling? Does it help you relax? Does it give you more energy? Does, are, are there? The diet itself doesn't necessarily do that, um, but the macrobiotic lifestyle includes exercise and relaxation techniques. So I am not an expert on, on macrobiotics. I, I looked into this um, to, to make a talk for, uh, that somebody requested. Um, but there is quite a bit more than just the diet to the macrobiotic lifestyle, which does also include meditative reflection and exercise. And I know you said it's lower in protein than most American diets, but yes. is the protein source the white fish? Or is oh, there no, there's protein. One can be a vegetarian and have plenty of protein. There's protein in whole grains. Um, there's protein in... Um, beans, there's protein in the sea vegetables, um, so there's even proteins in some fruits and vegetables in, in small quantities. So eating carefully, you can get a good amount of protein without having any animal products at all. Okay. What about coffee? Are you allowed to have coffee on the well, macrobiotic diet? the macrobiotic diet, the beverages were a little bit strange, and that's one place where people were... Um, worried about this diet is it says drink only when thirsty so it's not heavy on the drinking of anything but when you do drink they have something called grain coffees um, so it's a coffee made out of roasted barley or or chicory for example people have probably heard of chicory and coffee um, but no actual caffeinated coffee so it's going to taste a lot different it's not going to be the coffee we recognize no <laughs> they do allow um, a, a type of green tea however which probably does have a, have a little bit of caffeine all right well my guest has been registered dietitian nutritionist maria erdman talking about macrobiotic diets i'm amber smith for upstate's podcast and talk show HealthLink on air And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Healing can take many forms. We know how caregivers can help those who are ill. We know that sometimes just bearing witness can provide a sacred moment of relief, reliefs, or hope. I have two poems that illustrate such power. The first is from Irish poet Ted McCarthy, who lives in Clonez, Ireland. He's working on his third collection there. His poem, Jigsaw, paints a dramatic portrait of a child locked into his own world, working on a puzzle, while those who love him watch in agonized anticipation of his success. Here is Jigsaw. The clock ticks on the crossing of the threshold, and the boy with the tick, who measures time by the rise and fall of glucose in his blood, is seated at an unfamiliar table. A jigsaw piece is righted on the axle of his fingers. It glides like a spaceship over 30 possibilities. The picture lid has been turned to the wall. He pins together a world that was never whole, while the world as he knows it watches what it cannot fathom. We are a sea to him, a succession of waves, now comforting, rocking, now buffeting him with the unexpected, that enemy which startles him into consciousness each morning. What will happen? Where will it come from? And even becalmed, the slightest sound, birdsong, a distant car, snaps him into alertness, his head tilting noiseward like any prey. And for that heartbeat, we are all children, fearful, tense. This is as much as we know. Everything is stopped waiting for his muscles to thaw back into movement. It happens invisibly, like a breath exhaled. His company gathers itself into an edgy sense of balance, and the piece now wafts like a feather, now jerks, lands again and again where it makes no sense, 
then settles where it fits, not to the eye of right, but snug, a primal hug, a belonging. His body relaxes, eyes flutter, always a dawn. The second poem is by Kathleen Kelly, whose most recent work has appeared in Chautauqua, the Sufi Journal, and Persimmon Tree. Her poem, Prognosis, lets us share a hallowed moment of rest between two people in a hospital room, one who is ill, the other who is the protector and helpmeet. Here is Prognosis for K and S. The curtain is drawn around the bed, the light so dim when I enter the hospital room, I think for a minute I might be too late and almost turn away, but there they are. Blue hospital pajamas on the patient, asleep in the recliner. Street clothes on the woman asleep in the bed. Both facing the wall, bed and recliner united, locked hands between them. Indeed, they are up against a wall. And yet, if I could paint them, I would not portray them as prisoners of time, for which they care little. I would render them just starting out, surprise on their faces, hiking the Mohawk Trail with notebooks, intent on recording the girths of a few tall trees, red maple, white ash, bitternut hickory, late in the fall when the leaves are gone and nothing stops the light from reaching them. Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week, we'll hear about the dangers of misusing fentanyl and the possible connection between pesticide use and developmental delays. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening.